0: Welcome to the Third Space Podcast. I'm your host, Fai Farah. This episode is being sponsored by Audible. Um, I had Audible a while back and just kind of, you know, stopped using it. and And I just really... Happy to rediscover Audible. It's a, a platform where you can um, uh, download uh, audiobooks and, and oftentimes these audiobooks are um, are read by the author themselves. Um, and so it's been really nice to kind of rediscover Audible and we now have a discount code. Um, go to Audible and you can have a um, one-month free subscription to Audible if you use Third Space. Um, again, that's T H I R D Space, and you get one month uh, free and uh, a, a one uh, credit to a book. Your choice. Right now, I'm listening to Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. It's a book by Isabel Wilkerson. This book also happens to be an Oprah Book Club uh, selection. I have loved um, Isabel Wilkerson from uh, her book, Warmth of Other Suns. Her writing is exquisite. Uh, This particular book is so fascinating because it describes racism in in the United States as. as an aspect of, of, of a caste system, which is a socially wide uh, system of social stratification characterized by notions such as uh, hierarchy, inclusion, exclusion, and purity. And she just does such a beautiful job at making those connections within the American context. I highly recommend you check out this book, and you can listen to it for free on Audible with our discount code. Again, that is Third Space. That's T H I R D Space. Now back to our uh, regular scheduled programming. Enjoy. I. I want to begin by saying, "Hey, sorry, we took a little pause and forgot to tell you guys about it. Um, it was uh, really difficult to try to book people over the kind of August break, so we are really happy to um, to uh, bring you this newest episode. Uh, It's with such a really special guest. But before we get into that, um, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Chadwick Boseman. Um, I think this particular uh, loss has meant so much to so many people. And I've been trying to uh, figure out why it has hit me in a particular way. Um, and, uh, I think, I think it's because, um, Chadwick and his many roles, um, but particular as his role as, uh, King T'Challa in, um, uh, in Black Panther had just represented so much to us. It was, um, He represented a Black future, a kind of Black utopia, and a Black autonomy, and a a sense of Black unity, and a a collective, like, just pride. Um, My parents that never go to any movie theaters, uh, because they're practical people that like to stay home and watch whatever's on their TV, um, they got dressed up in in traditional oromo clothes which is um the ethnic group in Ethiopia that we belong to and um and went to go see this film you know and just to 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 just to see how much it impacted people all over the world uh, not only black folks but all people all over the world but especially black folks i know that this uh death is is um it, it, it feels like the death of a symbol as well I think that's why it 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 hits in in a particular way and and I think that um, the way that we honor the people that have meant so much and 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 lived a, a life of servitude is by continuing their work and honoring their legacy by living in servitude and living to um elevate a higher vision uh, for who we are as people. I think one thing that I appreciated so much about Chadwick Boseman and his work is how committed he was to uplifting um, the the way we saw ourselves as Black people in America. And his steadfast commitment to that um, allowed us to, to see ourselves as we truly are. And um, I want to Send my condolences to to his family and his loved ones and all of his friends and people that knew him personally and to anyone out there that is dealing with a loss um, at this very moment. Um, with that being said, um, I want to introduce my um, next guest. Uh, I'm just so, so excited to uh, have you guys listen to my conversation with um, Kelly Love Monster. Pre-COVID, you could find international party dad and nightlife personality Kelly Love Monster twirling on the dance floor in his pink pastel thong and cowboy hat. One of those millennial creatives who does a little bit of everything, art curation, nightlife producer, culture writer, and model. The brain behind Sydney, Australia's cheekiest event, Leak Your Own Nudes, which is a queer undies uh, day party. And uh, where a lot of us here might know uh, Kelly from, which is San Francisco's Swagger Like Us party, which is a a queer art hub uh, featuring emerging QTPOC musicians. Love Monster is a child of the night with a passion for music and the arts. I just loved this conversation with Kelly. Um, and I know that you will too. Uh, to follow Kelly's work, um, please follow him on Instagram. Uh, his handle is at girl, where are you at? <laughs> I love that. This is my delicious conversation with uh, my love, uh, Kelly Love Monster. Please enjoy. Kelly, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I um, I feel like I started this podcast really to have conversations with um, my rad friends that I love, and and just force them to talk to me for an hour. So I appreciate you making time to chat with me today.
1: It's my absolute pleasure.
0: so uh i guess let's first begin with where are you in the world i know this but they don't know this
1: (laughs) i think i would like to begin uh actually by saying uh i just want to put out into the world uh remind everyone on march 13th brianna taylor was murdered in her sleep in Louisville, kentucky the cops who killed her Mm. still have not been charged or arrested we need to keep working toward finding justice for Brianna and her family. So I just wanted to start off by saying that.
0: Thank <laughs> and you. then I
1: could get to myself.
0: Thank yes, thank you. <laughs> um,
1: hi, everyone. I am Kelly Lovemonster, and I am currently living on Gadigal land in Eora Nation, also known post-colonization as Sydney, Australia. I've been living here for two years. Um, with my beautiful family. I'm married to a beautiful man. I have a 13-month son. He grounds me. He brings me absolute joy. I feel forever blessed to have him a part of my life.
0: Well, and and just before we started recording me, we um I started talking about our kids and and gushing over them. Um I guess let's let's just I guess quickly begin there before we get into your origin story since it's uh these these are beings that are, you know, ever present in our life and in our mind. Um so how has parenthood been for you?
1: Parenthood has been the hardest uh thing i've ever done and it's been the most joyful thing i've ever done um and mm. i think that almost every parent you talk to would probably have a very similar experience i mean parenting brings up uh so many things about um how Uh, For me, it brings up uh, memories of how I was (laughs) parented Mm. and and makes me want to work towards um, healing um, the legacy of parenting that was left onto my being. So that's the first thing that comes up for me.
0: Well, I uh, I I think that's so fascinating because I can't tell you how many times in in parenting my my child I've like had to kind of stop to parent myself, you know, yeah. and kind of reheal um or or heal for the first time things that kind of either lay dormant and and kind of are activated as certain things play out, you know, there's like a a kind of memory in your body and certain reactions that you have about certain things. And, and it's almost like performative, like, this is what I saw. And so this is what you do. Like when, when your, your kid is like about to hurt themselves, you have to be really like, like emote and really be like flailing you know and I and I caught myself like many 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 times just like whoa what is that like that doesn't show up in any other time in my life like what's what's going on and how do I like heal the kid that was like hurt because they were curious and that was labeled something else you know um yeah I wonder if there are times where like old lessons come up for you and you have to kind of reprogram in some way.
1: I mean, all all the, excuse me, all the time. I feel like, you know, in in particular in moments of, uh, when I'm really stressed, I'm, Mm. I'm surprised at uh, my default setting, right. I'm surprised Mm. at, uh, the reactions that I uh go to first um mm. and I feel really fortunate that I've uh been in therapy for many years and I have um an ability to uh look at myself and um and catch myself and really just like tell myself that like whoa like that's one not how you wanted to react to the situation <laughs> and two mm-hmm. you can choose another way to be
0: right right i i think that's one thing that that um i mean i i'd heard other parents talk about like oh how difficult how difficult and i, I never feel like I haven't felt in 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 a very long time that like people talk about how joyful the experience is, and like what I want to say is I, I. I find that there is a level of exhaustion that comes with parenthood that ca- that sometimes causes that default setting that you're referring to, and I found that oftentimes I was, um, I was the lead parent and, and I thought like, well, I can, I can kind of endure the, the lack of sleep or, or kind of some of the confounding things that come up and add to the sleep deprivation. And I realized that like, there, there were moments that I was like deeply, deeply burning out, and and that I was failing to really communicate how desperately I needed um, uh, people, folks, friends, my, my partner to kind of step in and take that lead role, um, and 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 I had to learn to not get to that point, you know, and sometimes and because it didn't happen. Um, in this way ever in my life, I didn't, I couldn't tell what the signs were for burning out in this way. I could, I, I know what burning out professionally looks like, or, you know, feeling emotionally drained in a relationship, but I didn't know what burning out was as a parent in this relationship that brings so much joy. And, and, and also it, there is this kind of mental, spiritual, physical exhaustion because there's that kind of, like I was mentioning earlier, there's that dual parenting that happens. You are parenting this wonderful, joyous being while also having to reprogram and heal and, and love and parent yourself. You know, that's fucking exhausting.
1: It is exhausting. And I feel like I can so empathize and relate to um your journey of uh learning uh when you need a break (laughs) while parenting i feel like um i too have pushed myself (laughs) to the edge while parenting um you know my spence my partner he uh works full-time 40 plus hours a week um his job takes lots of brain power so Oftentimes, I am taking the lead with uh, Lexi, with my son. And, um, you know, for the, I one, I don't want this to sound like I'm complaining. It's a joy to get to hang out with my son. And I feel so, one of the upsides of COVID is that it's given me so much time and space to spend with my son. And I'm forever grateful for that. And (laughs) hanging out with a child 24-7 it's a lot, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't realize it was a lot until Lexi started daycare uh, four weeks ago, and I had my first. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I <laughs> know, and I had my first day off, and I was like, almost didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, had all this space and time, and I was like, oh, yeah, right. I I need to make sure that I'm. Uh, Taking care of myself in this way as well and, like, making sure, like, giving myself room to, uh, I don't to sit, to read, to think about creative Mm. projects, to, like, go to the gym, to, like, have a chat with a friend while my son isn't attached to me. Like, you know, like, those little things. right.
0: (laughs) Right. And to be bored, like there's so much that comes out of boredom, like there's so much creation or, or self uh, discovery. And there, because there isn't, Uh, space for that when you have, um, um, to be like a parent 24 seven, uh, you, you don't realize like those little things that, that you miss. And my, my kid, um, started daycare a couple weeks. Well, he he had started like a while back, but COVID hit and, and, um, the daycares were closed, but we just started about a week ago. And, um, and yeah, there's like, thank you so very much. (laughs) thank you. Um, But there's that moment where I'm like, Oh, wow, I, I have all of this space and time. And then i there are moments where I even found myself being like, kind of bored. And I didn't recognize that feeling, you know, Uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's really, really uh, an interesting experience. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about I thought was fascinating with becoming a parent is seeing how the relationships around you change. Have you <laughs> noticed that? Do you have any observation? I do, but I'm curious if you have any observation. I don't want to project my observations onto you, but I would love to talk to you about that because I, I think we as parents oftentimes don't talk about how the relationships around us shift for better or for worse, you know?
1: Totally. I... I have completely um had the experience of lots of relationships around me shifting since being a parent I think that um look I don't think it's universal but I I think that like for a lot of queer folks um we don't get to be around children often so I think mm-hmm. a lot of queer folks <laughs> don't know what to do when a kid is present and might mm-hmm. feel a little bit hesitant to be around a kid again not a blanket statement I'm just uh, speaking from my experience from my corner of the universe and I think that like you know after having Lexi um you know I definitely noticed like, not being called as often to go, like, hang out, (laughs) not because I don't think people were considering me, but maybe because people didn't know what to do if I were to bring my son, like, oh, what do we do? like, what do we do if there's a baby right. present? I'm like, oh, we do exactly what we always do. We sit down, we have chats, we go out for coffees, we sit in the park. <laughs> like, you know, like right. all those things can still happen while a baby's present.
0: <laughs> yeah, what you know, I, I think that was something that I observed as well and it made me kind of get in my feelings because I thought like, wait, why are you deciding for me? You know, like, yeah. why, why are you? And I, I never really understood. Well, I guess I never uh, framed it in the same way that you framed it. I, I just felt like, um, people were kind of labeling what my capacity was as, as a parent and, and, um, and that like, oh, you're, I had a friend once tell me like, oh, you're probably going to be too tired for this, or you're probably busy. Um, and, and, and I, um, I found that like, People were telling me what my capacity was or, or like what I could do or what it would look like to to like include my my kid in 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 my life with my friends. um. And it got me like, yeah, just really in my feelings, you know, um, totally.
1: I mean, I've because taken I the, no, you first go.
0: No, no, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say that I've taken the initiative and I've really like um challenge people's uh one perceptions of uh one what my capacities are I think it's so funny like anyone who knows me would probably say I'm a busy person (laughs) that I have lots of (laughs) things going on all the time so I don't know why having a kid would all of a sudden I mean, of course, having kids makes you busy or busier. But like, I'm used to being busy. Like, you know, I, it's this is all to say that I feel like we're the type of people who have a high capacity and know how to like manage <laughs> our lives, right. and and right. Like, we should be given the opportunity to say uh, how much we can handle. <laughs>
0: right? Yeah. Yeah, I I completely completely agree. Okay. So, um let's start from the beginning. I want to yeah. kind of get a little bit of your origin story and and find out like where you were born, how how were you where did you grow up and and how were you brought up? Um so I guess first, where were you born?
1: Yeah, so I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey. I'm a Jersey boy. <laughs> um and I I was uh, born to two Haitian immigrant parents. Um, my parents immigrated to the United States um, in the early, well, in late 70s, early 80s, and I was born shortly thereafter. Um, I went to uh, school in New Jersey, like my uh, uh when I went to university, I went to Rutgers university. I studied art history and English. I mean, mm. these are all things that I feel like when I think about, they feel like such a different life, <laughs> right? but right. like, um, they, they, they are the, uh, summation of who I am. Like these things all, uh, I guess not guess. I know they all help shape the person I am today. Um, but I think that my life really started to, uh, take on uh, the shape that it is now when I moved to California back in 2007. So after I graduated from college, I decided to uh, change things up and move to California. I was California dreaming and um, I moved to San Diego, California. I lived there for two years and then I moved to San Francisco, which was always my, ultimate uh, fantasy. I think the only reason I moved to San Diego was I had a friend who had gotten to grad school in San Diego and she said something like, oh, it's warmer in San Diego than San Francisco. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was in my early 20s. I was easily swayed. And um, But San Francisco was where I wanted to end up. And fortunately for me in 2009, I moved to San Francisco and I lived in San Francisco for um eight beautiful years
0: and uh you said that it was a place that you always wanted to live why was it a place that kind of meant something to you and was drawing you to it
1: Listen, I think when you're a young queer person, you hear about San Francisco. You hear about the city where, like, you can be like out and free. And like, mm. I just wanted to experience what it would feel like to live in a city where my sexuality wouldn't be the thing that defined me. You know, um, and it's so true. Like, moving to San Francisco really allowed me to explore other facets of myself because like everyone's gay (laughs) in fact everyone's (laughs) gay until proven otherwise
0: (laughs) and what was that experience like like okay you spend a couple years in san diego then you go to san francisco and what is what uh, were there experiences that confirmed the 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 hope and the fantasy of San Francisco for you? Um, or was it different than what you imagined?
1: Yeah, you know, so my first apartment was in Haight-Ashbury and living in Hay ashbury felt like such a dream. I was like, whoa. What a dream. I know, <laughs> was like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Grateful Dead, everyone like was walking up and down these streets and here I am now, I'm part of the legacy. <laughs> wow. um, and it just felt really... Um, it felt exciting. Um, and to answer your question, yeah, like in those first, uh, beginning years living in San Francisco, a lot of my like hopes and dreams were confirmed. I remember every time I started a job, like I never had to come out. Like you stop coming out when you live in San Francisco. Like, and that's a really beautiful thing to like, not have to worry about the, uh, Laboring, labor, and anxiety of coming out t- to your coworkers or your friends—it was just like never a thing.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean that's so huge. That's so, 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 so huge. Yeah, I guess because you what don't know how much tension like. is always in your body, right? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. exactly. exactly, exactly. I'd like to make an announcement, everyone. I am. Uh... <laughs> Well, and and everyone has should should experience that everywhere. I, I think that's like one of those things that you, um, I, you know, living living in, in in France right now. I'm in I'm in Paris. Like I, there are so many freedoms that I am experiencing that make me feel. Some like survivor's remorse, you know or guilt, because all um, you
1: I completely can relate to that living in Sydney feels so similar, like you know, what? I think like racism exists everywhere, but the brand of racism racism in America in particular is something just different. It just is the nastiest brand of racism that that exists on this planet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's just so it's so tactical and so organized and 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 you you said it so perfectly and I I refer to it as brand as well because I feel like, you know, I I have um, you know, uh French friends that experience a lot of um racism and homophobia and Islamophobia here in in France and Paris in particular and 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 I completely understand, um, that, that the things that they're experiencing, uh, are so, so, so difficult. You know, uh, I, I just know that there is, there is a, you know, you know, when, when Eric Gardner said, I can't breathe, I feel like that is like the the perpetual state of being a black person in America. It's, it's like, and you don't realize how, like that you're like breathing with like one collapsed lung and yeah. the other lung that's like half working you know until yeah. you, you go somewhere else and experience another reality what has that experience been like for you being a black man from the US that is now living in Sydney while also looking back to what's happening currently in the United States.
1: Yeah. Look, it's, it makes me think of, uh, writers and artists like James Baldwin and Nina Simone and people who were able to leave America, uh, and, and people who I consider having such, um, perspective on America. I think sometimes Mm. to, uh, gain that perspective. You need to leave so you can like look uh, back at the thing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think living in um, Australia has been a really beautiful uh, experience for me because it's made me realize so many things. One, it's made me realize that you know America as a country <laughs> doesn't give its people shit like America as a country does not take care of its people. America as a country fails fails the American people every single day and it's absolutely heartbreaking. And I'm not just talking about black people, I'm talking about all people. The fact that like healthcare is not a given in America, crazy. The, the fact that we have to convince people that we should we are deserving of healthcare, this is like that's a really Bizarre conversation to have. Like, I feel, I feel like it's just like, why isn't it a given? Why, why wouldn't you want to give all your people access to healthcare?
0: Well, and there is such a. I mean, America is so well known for its advertising and marketing genius that it's been able to advertise and, and and market. Uh, universal health care and, and healthcare care as a human right as some kind of socialist, uh, you know, wet dream and makes it makes Americans that that. That desperately need this vote against their own interests and and believe lies about like long lines in in Canada and and having to wait eight months for a surgery and like all of this kind of nonsense, you know. Um, but again, like having healthcare as a human right is makes such a huge shift in your life. I mean, even being here, I don't, I do not wait to go see the doctor or the dentist until like something is about to fall off at the first same. sign of something,
1: the it's, first sign
0: of something. I'm yeah. like, ding dong. Hi, it's Fiza. Can you check this? What is this? I you know. know.
1: And I, yeah. It's so funny that you say that because I feel like I had that same, a very similar experience when I first uh, moved to Australia and where like, you know, I would get, I remember I got a cold and I was just like, Oh, I'm just going to wait this out and see if I get better and my husband was like just go to the doctor and i was like no i i, I don't want to go to the doctor it's going to be expensive he's like it's not going to be expensive just go to the doctor and like it was so interesting how i had to be convinced to take care of myself mm-hmm. like i own, like america convinces you that like like, ah, oh, just like glue it together, tape it together and and make it work, <laughs> like you right. know, and you don't right. have to live that way, and now I'm so similar. the first sign of a sniffle, I'm like calling the doctor, making an appointment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right. I mean, and that, and that it kind of, it goes back to what I was saying about this, this kind of guilt that sometimes comes up for me. I mean, I think you're right to say that it, America fails all people, because that is the, that is the truer statement that it totally. that it does fail all people. And, uh, and it has this, this like rhetoric around poverty, um, and uh, how, how it's like a personal affliction and an affliction out of laziness and 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 low moral uh and and uh like just kind of uh lack of discipline and and it it makes people feel like they are solely responsible for their circumstance and then you go to other places where taking care of their population uh is really more of a priority and i you know there are times where I, I just feel like, like, especially for 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 Black people, because they ha- then also have to deal with like, you know, just like all of the psychic trauma of being Black in the United States and all the physical trauma and, and workplace violence and walking down the street. I mean, just living, trying to mm-hmm. live in the United States. I just want to scream, like, get the fuck out of there. Like you're watching this scary movie and you're screaming at the screen, like, get out, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I swing back to like, no, but this is, this place is your birthright, you know, and you shouldn't have to leave. But then, you know, I swing back to, well, wait, why do you have to sacrifice your life? Why can't freedom be within your lifetime? Why is it that you just have to, push the needle for the next generation and they continue the fight like fuck that shit fuck that shit like it should be yours right now you are entitled to this in within your lifetime right now and when i walk down the street and don't have like fearful interactions and and again this is not a perfect country by no means and not even near perfect, you know? Yeah. And neither um, is and, Australia. And, and I
1: don't want to make it sound like I live in a utopian country. Australia is, has its own problems, its own brand of racism. It has lots of shit that it needs to work out as well.
0: Right. Right. I mean, uh, like a huge colonial imp- like past and that has totally. like huge impacts on the present moment. And, and yeah again all of those things are horrifying and as a as a black american person living in 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 france it's like it's a, it's i can't tell you how free i feel here you know and i didn't even know it was possible i didn't even know it was possible and it it makes me just wish that feeling for my people and and it makes me ask I, that that question that I'm assuming Octavia Butler and and James Baldwin and Nina Simone, as you were saying, uh, ask themselves like, so so what do you do in in that freedom that can help bring some liberation to your people in the United States? You know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really uh, great question. Um, it's a really big question. I don't know. Look, I. I always tell people to bring their skill set to the revolution. <laughs> like you don't have to do right. anything outside of what you're already good at doing. But and right. I would say for myself, uh, I am good at and I enjoy bringing people together, making connections. Um, yes. It's it's always been my gift, um, uh, mm. so, and and reminding black folks that we also need to find joy and we also need to celebrate just despite the fact that like, you know, we're, mm-hmm. white people are trying to kill us every single day. <laughs> right. You know, I think that like, right. like joy is such an important part of this journey to freedom. And I don't want us to forget our joy.
0: Right. Also, yeah. even if it's, if it's your, your individual joy as well. You know, I feel like if someone said like, Hey, like, would you do it if you could just save one life? And it's like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. You know? And, and would you do it if, if that one life was, was yours is, does your life have enough meaning? Do you matter? You know? Um, And the, the, the beauty of also being parents and, and, and being able to protect and cultivate that joy for, for our black babies is, is pretty, pretty amazing as well.
1: Totally. You know what? And it's so crazy because I oftentimes think about my black baby and like yeah. raising a black child is just like a fucking trip, man. I've like thought of, I, I'm, I, I constantly think about how his, Blackness intersects with the outside world or interacts with the outside world and how I'm going to arm him to know uh, the brand of racism that he lives in, (laughs) but not let that limit him. Like, you know, how do you how do you teach a child that unfortunately people are going to have uh, preconceived notions of who they are, what they can do? um, And that's all bullshit, <laughs> you know, it's like, right, how do you let him right. know the rules and let him know that he can break the rules?
0: Right. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I think is, uh, one of the beautiful challenges of parenthood and, and why I'm so grateful that I waited in, um, my late thirties to become a parent because I feel like I needed to ask those questions of myself, you know, uh, um, totally and 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 arm myself and and find ways to be be free and and bring liberation for my own body and uh, and have that be the work every day Um, and it's 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 wild it's it's wild um how much fear there is as a parent uh especially when you have a black child you know um i again, had heard many, many times from other black parents and their testimony of, of just how like paralyzing that fear is to have like, you know, some, some thing that you love so much be out, go and and live and exist out in the world and, and, and know that there are things that you can't protect them from, but you do have to arm them with the kind of information and, and a kind of curiosity. And, um, and it's it's difficult. It, it you know, I I'm I'm curious will, will you and your family ever go back to the US or do you find that Australia is going to be kind of your your permanent home?
1: Um I think uh I don't know the answer to that. I feel that my family and I will continue to explore the world together. <laughs> and I think right yes. now uh we live in Australia and that works for us and that makes sense for us. but we've definitely talked about living in other countries and living um, and experiencing other countries. I mean the world is so big and there's so many things that I would love to show my son. Um, so I think to answer your question, I, 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 yeah I, I want to show my son America, so maybe we, we would go live there for a little while, but it terrifies me. I'm, it's so crazy to think about what raising a little black boy in America would be like. I mean, I was raised in America and, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure my parents, like, I can only imagine what their experience was like and the things that they had to worry about. You know, I think what's the hardest for me to begin to articulate is that I love America <laughs> and I love what um, right. America offers and I love, loved my experience growing up in America. But after leaving America, I realized that America is actually really limiting and, um, mm-hmm. and limiting for black people. And um, it was, and you know, and it's- and, In and what it, way? In just, in lots of ways. I think America does a really good job at indoctrinating black people at a very early age to let them know that they're less than and that what they can become is like there's almost like a cap on how much we can grow, like you know. Mm. And 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 these are and the thing about this is American racism. I think why this that brand of racism is so bad is because there's so many nuanced bits to it, right? So it's not. Right. the big things it's not the kkk it's not like the white supremacists it's like the small things it's the small everyday things it's the the white person uh asking you uh to touch your hair or asking you about your hair or like it's these small microaggressions mm. that you experience every day in america that like just really break you
0: mm.
1: and again it's not to say that they don't happen in Australia or in other parts of the world. But I think that in America in particular, I don't know, for whatever reason, I just feel like it's just way worse.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And there is a kind of suspicion about you that, you know, makes you then suspicious of yourself and your goodness, you know, that's how insidious it gets. It's like, you know, somebody following you in a store and and then just as you walk out, knowing you haven't stolen anything, you're like, is, is something going to beep? Like, did I, you know, like totally. the, the, that, that, that energy is so toxic and so insidious that it really seeps into you. And, you know, I think one thing about, um, you know, America and, and a lesson that you receive when you are a black person that you just kind of get indoctrinated, is like, you got to be twice as good, get, good, twice as good to go to get, you know whatever the fuck like a half of whatever somebody else gets oh. Um, and if and you that, have immigrant some, parents, you
1: have to be four times oh God. good.
0: Right, right. <laughs> and like, like that's okay, you know. And I understand, like, I understand the logic of saying, like, look, you can't change the world, so you might as well adapt, so you have a chance. And I get the the realism in that, but then there's something that happens when we forget to see that as like something so wholly unfair and insane and accept it as as just what we have to do and and then measure our 1.5 effort or 2x effort or 3x effort as as somehow not being worthy even though we've been going on 3x effort for however we how long however long we've been on the planet you know it just there is something there is some messaging of not enough that then gets uh you know uh transferred and people really em- embody H- how did you feel like some of those lessons you know and and some of those things that were existing in your body you had to kind of let go when you were in Australia
1: yeah Look, I think that, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, It's so interesting because I think that, like, uh, someone uh, once articulated to me uh, in a conversation, like, you know, when you're Black in America and you walk into a store, you might get followed around because they think you're, like, poor and going to steal something, right? And if you're, like, in a foreign country and you're Black, and they hear your American accent, they might think to themselves, oh, he has enough money to travel. Maybe he's rich and he's going to buy something, you know, like there's like almost like a, right. a change in mindset. And again, I'm not saying yeah. that this is a hundred percent true. And you know? I'm not saying that this is something that like every black American person who travels outside of America will experience and does experience. But I'm saying that uh, for whatever reason, when you are abroad when you leave america you almost could become there's there are more variations of the type of black person you could potentially be
0: Mm. you
1: know whereas in america you could only be a a very particular type of black person
0: right right yeah that's that's certainly been my experience in, in in paris that there is this kind of projection of what your perceived class is. And, and so therefore this puts you in a kind of upper echelon that then shifts the way people relate to you because they project that you must have some money. And, and so therefore you, you, you are deserving of being treated decently, you know, just insane. Um, I want to go back to your, uh, time in San Francisco, um, Uh, just how formative that (laughs) (laughs) Was, um, because because of all of the work that you were able to accomplish during your time in San Francisco, that I think is really important for us to kind of uh, dig a little deeper. Totally. Um, So how how did you? Because you're when I think about your work, it's like a beautiful. uh, There's a beautiful intersection of like um, cultural uh, creation, art curation. Um, uh, like, uh, just dope ass events, and and then breaking phenomenal artists. So, how did you get to that? How, how did you get to? Um, uh, did Swagger Like Us come first?
1: So Swagger Like Us did not come first. So um, okay, I guess you know it's so interesting. I so one I just for everybody I work at the intersection of nightlife and the arts. So I produce large-scale public events. And I center Black folks and um, people of color and First Nation folks. Um, And that journey kind of all really started when I started dating my husband. And um, I came to Australia for the first time in 2011. And uh, I was supposed to be here for three months and I ended up being here for six months. And while I was here... I um, couldn't work because I was on a tourist visa, so I was trying to figure out ways to hustle to make some money, and I decided to throw a party, and um, my husband and a group of friends of ours in uh, Australia produced an event, and it was so much fun, and it, you know when you find that thing that you're just like, oh, I should be doing this, like, did, did you watch uh, the last season of Insecure? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I felt like one. I was like I am Issa Rae. Like I the, the that Issa in Insecure that's me. Like I am that <laughs> I am that like black cultural curator. Like like I felt that yes. storyline so much. I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> I like went through that journey as well." Um but it's all to say that like yeah, my the first event I produced um happened in Australia. And it kind of like, it left a really, it was super impactful and uh, just really left a, quite an impression on me. And I produced a couple of events in Australia. And then when I went back to the U S um, this opportunity came up for me to uh, produce a, a vet at El Rio, which is this beautiful um, queer space in san francisco they have a large patio and lots of iconic parties uh have taken place at el rio and i had a close friend who did uh the programming there and they were like hey i know you've been dabbling in producing events um would you like to try producing an event in the space and i was like oh i totally would um and uh i have my business partner david richardson a dear friend of mine musician producer just all around talented uh guy um he was at the time one of my favorite DJs in San Francisco and he uh produced an event called Blood Sweat and Queers and when this opportunity to produce an event at reel, came my way I thought to myself oh it would be amazing to work with David on this and Mm that's how Swagger Like Us was born. Um, David and I sat together and we started having conversations on the type of event we would produce together and lots of our politics and lots of our ideas aligned. And we threw one event. Our first event had about 300 people at it. And we were like, whoa, how did 300 people just Mm -hmm. come to this little party that we just threw together? Um, And then um, that was in 2012. And then from there, our event quickly grew. We got a regular Sunday spot at El Rio. They gave us a spot. We could throw a party there once a month. And um, yeah, that just really got the um ball rolling. And next thing you know, like David and I were like, okay, like we started booking a whole bunch of local acts from the Bay. And then we were like, oh, who else could we bring out to uh, San Francisco to perform? And then, it just like took off from there, and you're absolutely right. I feel super fortunate in that I've gotten to like work with and like showcase lots of artists before they became like super popular and and gained lots of momentum, like
0: one you of those you notable, some of them
1: yeah, one of those notable artists is like Princess Nokia. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. we like booked Princess Nokia to come play Swagger. And, um, I was so stoked when we got that booking. And, um, when Destiny came out to San Francisco, she was super humble, super easy to work with. And we threw an epic party with her like she was crowd surfing mm. it was just like it felt mind-blowing i was like <laughs> oh i was like this girl i was like this is the last time we will ever be able to afford this girl she's about to <laughs> blow up and like do a whole bunch of really rad things and sure enough she did and like and it's been mm. really beautiful to watch um yeah and again we've gotten to work with just lots of really rad artists like cakes the killer tt the artist who now like um has uh had music uh showcased on insecure she's like um directed a beautiful film about um baltimore and uh Mm. the dancing style uh that originated in baltimore like just like lots of really rad artists who now i like look up to. And uh, with such high regard, we've had the opportunity and the pleasure to work with.
0: You know, there are um, listeners from all over the world. I I know for the San Francisco listeners, the Bay Area folks, anyone that's kind of based in California or the United States, they'll know about swagger like us. But there is something about swagger that was just so unique in terms of what it meant for people and what it means to people. Um, I wonder if you can speak to that. Like, you know, when you think about curating a a space or uh, creating opportunities for people to come together and be themselves, you know, how do you, how do you architect that? How do you create that kind of space And, and what did that space mean to so many people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to tell the story, we need to talk a little bit about the history of San Francisco, and folks need to know that San Francisco used to have a thriving Black uh, community. San Francisco was like the Harlem, they had a neighborhood, um, the Fillmore, which was the Harlem of the West, right? So Mm -hmm. like jazz musicians and just like uh, Black artists, writers, dancers, creatives, like San Francisco was this, like, a hub of Black excellence. And mm-hmm. um, through the years, um, the Black population in San Francisco has just uh, diminished drastically. I think when I last looked, it's something like pff, under 3% of San Francisco is Black. <laughs> um, and it was just... And, and it's sad. And what that meant or what that means is that there were very few spaces for black people to congregate in San Francisco and um i really wanted to uh host an event and create a space where black folks can congregate in mass and celebrate the fact that we're still here <laughs> we're still mm. in San Francisco and um yeah and let's and let's celebrate the fact that um we're still here yeah, so that's a yeah, little it, bit uh, a, a background of like some of the intention behind the event.
0: Yeah, and there's, you know, the it's it's hard to even account for like how like what that really does for someone, you know, when when you find yourself being uh, uh a relic in your own city and then you find out a, about an event where Uh, people can come together and then you feel like, well, no, actually, no, I'm not a relic. I, I'm, I'm here, I'm thriving. And, and, and um, I can take up space. It's just so, so, so huge. So huge. And also it just was a fucking rad party. It was just so. Totally.
1: And I think one (laughs) of the beautiful things about Swagger is that, especially the El Rio parties, there's nothing like partying during the day. Partying yeah. during the day outside in the sunshine is just like such a healing experience, <laughs> and um, right. I'm so grateful that I got to. Uh, for years, like um, it was, it, it almost felt. It felt like church. It felt like just like this amazing communion that we did like once a month we all got together and we just like celebrated the fact that we were like you know black and beautiful and thriving mm. in San Francisco.
0: Mm. And and now with with uh with the pandemic and COVID-19 how how has that impacted the the work that you do and and how do you kind of reframe your work to, to meet this moment?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really uh, great question. COVID-19 has really shifted a lot of my work. Um, so since the pandemic started, uh, Swagger Like Us has gone on hiatus. I mean, part of our ethos is that um, we we don't ask artists to do things for free. Um, We Mm. uh, pride ourselves in being able to pay artists and pay artists like, you know, uh, uh, stipends and wages that they deserve. Like, you know, I, I don't, it's just, it's been such a big part of uh, swagger, like being able to employ black people has been such Mm. a joy and a pleasure and, Since the pandemic has hit, it's actually been really hard because, you know, we're a small business. (laughs) All that money to produce those events, that's our money. We reinvest our own money into our parties all the time. And um, the pandemic happened at a really interesting time for us because it happened, uh, it hit San Francisco in March. So... We weren't able to, like, uh, have uh, our beginning parties to create that revenue stream to be able to support us throughout the rest of the year, like, you know. Um, mm. Again, not to get into the business aspect of it, but it just meant that we had to go on a pause. So, we've actually just been waiting. We've been reaching uh, – lots of folks have reached out to us to produce events. Um Uh, and to work with them to do, like, live stream and other things like that. But we've had to say no because lots of time those things come without a budget. And I refuse to do any work (laughs) without a budget. I'm just like, I'm not going to ask a whole bunch of Black people to do work for free. (laughs) It's just not what I'm about. And um, so until we can uh, gather safely and pay our artists what they deserve. We're just going to keep uh stay on this little pause.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I think one thing that this pandemic has kind of uh, like just highlight highlighted for me was you know, expanding the notion of who who first responders are uh, beyond doctors and nurses that are really doing God's work. It's the bus drivers, the the uh, the grocery store clerks the the janitors the sanitation workers all of the people that kind of keep things going but what i found uh was that as i was stuck in my tiny um parisian apartment with a a husband and a child um that i was really like Going towards film and novels and podcasts and music and that there are these that, that these artists were also um, uh, first responders for my own well-being and my own, uh, you know, mental health. And so the idea of in this time to get black people to, to work for free when they're doing such important work, it, it just seems Uh, absolutely absurd you know
1: yeah i really enjoyed i I, i've listened to quite a few of your podcast episodes and i really enjoyed your conversation with saturn because you guys had uh lots of interesting uh dialogue in and around equity and i think that like in this uh wave of uh, civil rights that are, is happening. And I why I call it a wave is because, you know, Black people have been trying to get free ever since Christopher Columbus landed on the island of Hispaniola. Like, we have... Right. <laughs> like, this is not new. Like... This is not right. the first civil rights movement. It's not the second civil rights movement. Civil rights have been happening literally since they got us on those boats. <laughs> right. And I just think it's really important to, like, remind people that, that like, Black people have been working for freedom ever since the day we were enslaved. <laughs> um, right. And it's also right. the day that what we lack is equity. It's like, you know, people love the culture. People love the fashion, the music. The, the They want our, us to participate and uh, and give them our creativity, our ideas. But no one's willing to give you the coin. And that to me is like, right. I'm on a full stop until people can give the coin. Like, I can't do anything for free. It's like, we have we have given plenty we have done all the free labor we have we ever need to do it's done
0: oof. <laughs> oof yeah that just yeah just gave me the chills yeah it's it's really crazy i never really made that connection that black folks in America that our descendants of enslaved Africans have already given so much free labor to ask them to give one more free thing is fucking insane. It's mind blowing. (laughs) That's
1: really crazy. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I honestly, um, hadn't made that connection uh, until you articulated it so beautifully. Um, Wow! So I can't believe we're already at the hour mark. I, no. I feel like I, I feel literally like so can talk to, to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna schedule like a weekly chat offline. Yeah. Just you know. <laughs> um, uh, and so with every episode of um, the podcast, we we la- ask our guests um, this last question and the question is what is a lesson that you knew f- like so certainly in, at one point in your life that you um, now yeah. have learned that you had to unlearn that lesson because it just no longer serves you
1: look my answer for this is a bit complicated i am i'm my answer for this question is like I'm i feel
0: complicated
1: yeah i've been unlearning all the anti blackness that has been uh, taught to me (laughs) since the day I was Mm -hmm. born. So I've been unlearning all of that. Like, you know, and what that looks like for me is like, um, re centering Mm -hmm. myself in a black standard of beauty (laughs) and really, uh, and, and, and I do that by like filling my social media feeds with black creatives, with, um, things that radiate black joy and black excellence people who radiate black joy and black excellence um looking in the mirror and telling myself that I'm beautiful like I feel like Mm. it's I've been unlearning so much uh anti-blackness and confronting how it lives within my body because it does and I just think that like you know, before we can heal the world, we need to heal ourselves. So I've been working on unlearning and healing that part of myself.
0: Mm. Uh, That is really powerful. That's so, so powerful. And for our listeners out there, wherever you are in the world, it's one of those things that, you know, um, you, it's a, it's one of, it's an ongoing project that you have to kind of stay committed to, to, to doing and to constantly, um, knowing yourself so that as the negative messaging comes, you can confront it with the truth because you know, the truth of yourself. And so that's really, really beautiful. Um, well, Kelly, I am so, so honored that you made time to chat with, uh, with me. I just need to have a second to gush over you. I've, I don't think I've ever said this to you in person, but I, I feel like it's really important to say it to you. I, uh, you know, as a, as a black woman, there aren't too many opportunities to feel like you are seen or loved or celebrated. And I've always, always, always felt like you not only um, see me, but I feel very, very uh, loved and honored and um, protected and 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 celebrated. Uh, every single interaction that we've ever had has always been really kind of uh, uh, just elevating and I, I just think that you're just one of those like magical, rare beings that, that gets it. And I will follow you and your work, uh, whatever you do. I, I, I will just always be really excited about it because you are just so, so special. So thank you again for making time to chat with me. I loved our conversation.
1: I'm smiling so big. I wish you could see. Thank you for your kind words. That was so sweet. Um, And yeah, and I, and I really do feel all those things for you. Um, I think you're absolutely incredible. Thank you for uh, holding the space. Um, Again, like I said, I've been listening to your podcast and I really have been enjoying the folks and the conversations you've been having. And I'm so happy that, um, yeah, that, that this exists and that you're doing all this really important and amazing work. And I'm so excited to continue to follow your journey and to see how this blossoms and grows.
0: Thank you so much, Kelly.